The Dance Edit podcast is brought to you by Jackrabbit Dance. Jackrabbit is the industry's most reliable dance studio management software. If you're a studio owner, you know how important class management software is. Jackrabbit is going to make your life so much easier. Their software is cloud-based, powerful, and adaptable. And Jackrabbit has the industry's largest team of trainers, product coaches, and client success specialists to support you in your studio. You wouldn't accept less than the best from your students. Don't accept it from your software either. Visit jackrabbitdance.com and use the promo code DANCEMEDIA, all one word, for a free trial. Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Lydia Murray. And I'm Cadence Neenan. We are editors at Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit Magazine, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about the reality of dancing in a face mask, which is part of the dance world's new normal now, Um, discussing what a TikTok ban might actually mean for the dance community, since many dancers and dance organizations have come to rely on the app in multiple ways taking a moment to appreciate the sheer fabulousness of American Ballet Theatre principal and pop musician James Whiteside's Quarantine Life, and hearing from arts advocate and educator Phil Chan, the co-founder of Final Bow for Yellow Face. Uh, Before we get into all that here, as usual, is your reminder to follow us on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit, and of course to sign up for our daily dance email newsletter at thedanceedit.com. We are all becoming better talkers, but us hosts are writers by training. So if you like listening to us, you just might like reading us even more. Um, So now let's officially start things off with our dance headline rundown. We have a whole bunch of important news stories we want to make sure that we get to this week. Lydia, will you start us off? Yes, the International Association of Blacks in Dance released The Black Report, which is an in-depth assessment of the IABD member company landscape. It draws from a sample of 30 Black-led dance companies in the U.S., and it's a first-of-its-kind resource compiling quantitative and qualitative data that offers insight into several areas, including compensation, funding, touring, and staffing, just to name a few. Uh, It illustrates not just the state of Black dance organizations in the country today, but also the contributions of Black dancers throughout the modern history of dance and throughout the diaspora. So I highly recommend reading it if you haven't yet. Yeah, it's major. We will include the link in our episode description. Troy Powell was removed from his position as artistic director of Ailey 2, the junior company of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, following an independent investigation into his alleged sexual misconduct. And the Tony Award winner, Laura Benanti, will play a tap dancing former auto company executive in the upcoming show on Fox, Big Leap. The more we hear about that show, the more I am both confused and intrigued by it. I just heard Laura Benanti and I was like, check into it. (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) Um, Lincoln Center is celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act with a series of public and private events, including a video series of new works created by deaf and disabled artists. Yeah, happy Disability Pride Month, everybody. The actual 30th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is a watershed piece of legislation, is this Sunday, July 26, 2020. 
And the French ballet icon Zizi Jean-Mer has left us at the age of 96. She passed away at her home in Switzerland on July 17th. Jean-Mer was a star ballerina who danced with the Paris Opera Ballet, Ballet de Monte Carlo, Ballet Russe. She rose to fame for her portrayal of Carmen in the 1949 ballet choreographed by Roland Petit, who would later become her husband. And she subsequently became a fashion icon and a cabaret star. Also, earlier this week, Vogue published an article about her role in fashion and her status as a muse to Yves Saint Laurent. Uh, it has some beautiful photographs and a lot of really interesting information. We'll link to that in the episode description too. She also, there's all kinds of incredible footage of her available on YouTube. Um, there's tons from Carmen. There's some of her and Eric Brune in Hans Christian Andersen, the film from the 50s. Um, but if you haven't yet watched the 1966 film of her and Nureyev in Roland Petit's Le Jeune Homme et les Morts, go watch it. Now, that's mandatory viewing. It's incredible. Though theaters were originally included in New York City's final phase of reopening, a spokesperson for Governor Cuomo confirmed that Broadway and off-Broadway theaters will remain closed until further notice in sad but pretty predictable news. Yeah, that last story is, you know, yet more evidence that however the recovery process is going in other industries and In the U.S., honestly, that recovery isn't looking especially great anywhere, but whatever the timeline ends up being, it will inevitably be slower for the performing arts, and that's especially true for dance, since it tends to involve people working in close proximity, and it frequently requires crowded theater settings to be profitable. So full-scale dance reopenings are still a ways off. Um, But in the meantime, dancers in many locations are slowly beginning to return to the studio, um, to the daily work of dance, with many safety precautions in place. And the new normal in the studio involves face masks. So the complexities of mask wearing while dancing is the subject we'd like to get into in our next segment. Yeah, and it definitely makes sense. Um, Exercising indoors increases the risk of spreading coronavirus because there's nowhere for those scary aerosolized droplets that spread the coronavirus to go. Yes, and one of the simplest things you can do to help prevent the spread of those droplets is to cover your nose and mouth with a mask. Um, And you also, of course, tend to breathe more heavily during exercise, which means you're spreading even more droplets, even farther distances. Um, That doesn't mean it isn't challenging. Um, There are a couple stories, one in Dance Magazine, one in Dance Spirit, talking about how do you choose the best mask for dance? And then how do you actually dance in it once you've chosen it? Um, It's a lot of sort of common sense seeming advice, but it's also really useful and practical. Um, In terms of the type of mask, essentially it boils down to thin, but not so thin that it's ineffective. Natural fabrics are best. Do not wear disposable masks because they tend to start to break down once they become wet from sweat or from breath. Um, Make sure it fits well so it actually stays on while you're dancing and you're not tempted to fiddle with it, which can contaminate it. Um, and then there's some discussion, too, of the breathing issues that might happen as, you know, you do in- the intense exercise that is dancing. Yeah. Um, I mean, there definitely is research that shows that exercising while wearing a mask may elevate your heart rate. And obviously, for people with any kind of respiratory pre-existing conditions like asthma, it's going to be a real challenge. And I think, you know, that is something that every studio is going and every dancer is going to have to work out individually. But it's important to keep in mind that you're wearing a mask to protect other people from you, you know, that you might have coronavirus, even if you're not demonstrating symptoms. And we all really need to think about being a little selfless right now. Yes. And of course, even though younger, healthy people are not in the highest risk uh, category for COVID, they can still suffer long-term effects that can hurt a dance career like lung damage. 
Protect other people. Protect yourself. Wear a mask. Yes. Yep. It'll be sweaty and gross. It'll be worth it. So while in-person dance activities are still quite limited online, the dance activity level feels almost frantic. Um, and we, I mean that not just in terms of the sheer number of digital productions and streaming events that have been happening, but also in terms of the ramped up digital marketing efforts we've seen across the dance world during the pandemic. Um, TikTok in particular has emerged during this period as a powerful marketing tool for dance and theater. And so in our next segment, we wanted to talk about what might actually happen from a dance perspective if the U.S. government does decide to ban the video sharing app, as it has threatened to do, um, citing national security concerns. Okay, so in short, relatively, uh, TikTok is owned by a Beijing-based startup company called ByteDance, and some U.S. politicians are concerned about the app's ties to China. Um, as tensions between the United States and China have risen in recent weeks, prominent U.S. officials are looking at banning all Chinese social media apps in the United States, including TikTok. Um, obviously, there are very real security concerns with a company based outside of the U.S., kind of how that data is being passed in between the United States and other countries, and especially because so many of TikTok's users are, you know, young people, young dancers, there are a lot of concerns around those kinds of security issues. But um, for what it's worth, you know, TikTok argues that it operates separately from its founding company, ByteDance, and that their data centers are located entirely outside of China, that their data is not subject to Chinese law. So this really shouldn't be an issue. That's the the U.S. version of TikTok? Yes. the Yeah, the TikTok that we use. Um, but, you know, government officials are still very concerned. So it's become a really big issue recently. Yeah, I mean, there is like thinking about the fact that TikTok might be using these user uploaded videos, mostly uploaded by young people to hone their facial recognition surveillance technology. There have been allegations about that. And that is, yes, mm -hmm. the stuff of Orwellian nightmare. That's terrifying. <laughs> um, but politics is also very clearly involved here. I mean, given that most of the legitimate TikTok concerns cited by the administration also apply to many other American-hosted social media networks. Um, so a ban would be primarily, it seems, about sending a political message. Yes, and TikTok has been used um, as a political, as a tool for political organizing and education, similar to the way that other social media platforms like Twitter have been used. Um, I think an example that most people are familiar with is the, the rally in Tulsa, where a lot of TikTok users who were mostly young people took credit for sabotaging attendance. So uh, this seems to me to be one of the real issues here for, for some people in power. And I think a lot of people have noted that the potential of a TikTok ban did arise pretty shortly after the rally in Tulsa. So, you know, a few TikTok users are questioning the motivations behind the sudden interest in a TikTok ban. So given the sort of symbiotic relationship between dance and TikTok, I mean, this platform has been a home for dance kind of from the, the beginning. Um, what would a ban mean for the dance community? How, I mean, we can talk a little bit about how there's a Forbes story discussing the ways that Broadway marketers in particular have seen the benefits of TikTok. And we also, we got a sort of funny preview of TikTokless life a week ago when a glitch on the app erased video views and immediately everybody, all of TikTokers assumed that this is it. We're going out. Time to say goodbye. Um, if TikTok is banned, where do the TikTokers go? I mean, I think a lot of people are kind of going back to the disappearance of Vine as kind of a 
foundation for what the disappearance of TikTok would look like, which I think is fair in some ways. The apps are very similar, you know, the short videos. So a lot of Viners went to YouTube and people are assuming that the same will happen for TikTok. But I think there's a difference in scale, though. I think also it's missing a lot of what makes TikTok individual and kind of special. I think for me, at least, what I've seen the most on the app is the way that the algorithm helps aid discovery of new things. You know, I can't tell you how many times a day my friends are texting me, I found this sustainable brand on TikTok, or I found this new song on TikTok. And I think for the dance community, the musical theater community, that has been really fantastic. It's helped bring a whole new audience to the arts. People are finding musicals and performers and dancers that they would not have found were it not for the help of TikTok. And YouTube doesn't function the same way that TikTok does that way. So I think it's we're definitely losing something if we lose TikTok. Absolutely. I mean, what will this mean for the marketing of dance and theater? Broadway alone saw huge gains in influence from TikTok. Uh, for as an example, Beetlejuice on Broadway, according to to a Forbes article, nearly a trillion, a little trillion of uh, TikTok videos related to Beetlejuice um, were produced. And one thing that's interesting to me about TikTok in terms of dance is, to me, it feels like the first platform I've seen to have a specific dance style that's unique to the platform. There's Mm -hmm. a very recognizable TikTok dance style. And even though other forms of dance have been popular on other social media platforms for years, like hip hop has dominated YouTube and so forth, I don't know that I have seen such a deep connection between a social media platform and a form of dance that lives there. It created a new dance form, like in essence. It really did. And then if people migrate to other platforms, will we see a shift in the culture of those other platforms? Like YouTube's user culture is currently characterized by longer form videos and that sort of thing. So, Well, and Instagram is even developing Reels right now, which is kind of their take on TikTok. So, you know, how is that going to develop both in connection with TikTok or if TikTok ends up getting banned. Or are we going to see other similar apps like Triller or Dubsmash experience a rise in popularity instead? Is just going to be a mass migration to some other similar form that allows TikTokers to continue creating the specific type of content they'd mastered for this one medium? So many questions. I feel like all, all of our segments these days just end in hundreds of unanswerable questions. <laughs> all of the questions. <laughs> um. Okay. So in our fourth segment, we want to talk about a bit of quarantine content that we've just found comfort and joy in this past week. Um, That would be Vogue's video following 24 hours in the life of James Whiteside, because if, like James, you are an American Ballet Theater principal and a pop princess and a drag star, lockdown just hits a little different. I have to say the number one thing I got from this video is feeling like I am not doing interesting enough stuff with my days. (laughs) Like I wake up and like if I read 10 pages from a book, I'm like, great, I had a day. James is making craft cocktails, doing an entire face of makeup, teaching ballet class, planning a music video, crafting Batman ears. I just... I need more hobbies. Um, <laughs> yeah. So in the video, he shows us all of his creative personas from being a singer under the name JB Dubs to drag star Uhu Betch to being one half of the Cindy's along with Isabella Boylston. Um, he teaches a ballet class and brushes his teeth and beats his face and like all of it is amazing. Um, <laughs> I I love ballet stars who are boldly multidimensional and unafraid to show us their normal selves in addition to the glamour and fabulousness, um, which is one reason, yeah, that this was so much fun. 
retweet. I love that he's doing all of these fascinating and kind of glamorous projects. I mean, he's literally making a video for Vogue, but he's doing it from Milk's parents' bathroom with its yes. like late 80s decor, all the oak paneling. It's real. It feels real. Um, and we should also note that um, so James's pop alter ego, JB Dubs, his third pop album, Bodega Bouquet, is coming out this Monday, July 27th, which happens to be James' 36th birthday. The release of the album will be accompanied by a new music video. It's shot in quarantine. It's the one you hear I'm talking about in the Vogue video. Um, it sounds like he's choreographing something. So yay. Lots to look forward to. Um, now we have the next installment in our voice memo series. Um, each week, we're asking a different dance artist or a dance world leader to leave us a message, just sharing what they're working on and what they're thinking about and what's inspiring them. So this week, we have a memo from Phil Chan, who is the co-founder of Final Bow for Yellowface, um, which aims to make dance more inclusive by creating more positive and nuanced representations of Asians on stage. Um, and in fact, Chan, who's a, a former dancer, has helped many professional arts organizations navigate issues around race and cultural appropriation, finding ways to help dance companies and, and ballet companies in particular move toward diversity, equity, and inclusion without completely discarding their artistic legacies. Here he is. My name is Phil Chan. I'm the co-founder of Final Bow for Yellowface. With the recent conversations around Black Lives Matter being embraced by ballet companies across the country, there's renewed examination to the roles we all play to uphold white supremacy in ballet. Now, if you cringed when I said white supremacy, I am not suggesting our community is filled with KKK members. White supremacy doesn't just look like that. What I mean by white supremacy in ballet is the fact that you've probably never seen a full-length ballet by a Black person. Have you? Can you name more than one or two Asian choreographers who've made work for a major ballet company, if any? That's white supremacy. One area I'm focused on is how Asians are represented, and have been asking questions about how to preserve Orientalist ballets like Le Corsaire and Le Bayadere. What do these ballets look like when we produce them not just for Russian audiences living 150 years ago, but for diverse American audiences living today? How are we going to preserve the important dance history containing these ballets, the classical foundation from which we drive the art form forward, if we just dismiss these works as racist and never perform them again? At Final Bow, we are just as much about focusing on solutions as we are with pointing out the problems. To that end, I've been collaborating with the brilliant dance scholar Doug Fullington on new versions, American versions, of Bayadere and Corsair that retain and even restore Petipa's choreography, but make the stories about us instead of them. This isn't so different than the approaches by Dance Theatre of Harlem's Creole Giselle, for example, set in Louisiana instead of Austria, or the Royal Danish Ballet's Napoli, now set in the 1950s. So for our Bayadere, uh, the action takes place in the 1930s in Hollywood and mirrors the plot of Singing in the Rain. So imagine Nakia as Debbie Reynolds, Gene Kelly as Salar, and the dramatic Lena Lamont as our Gamzadi. Uh, our version is complete with a Busby Berkeley Kingdom of the Shades fantasy. Uh, instead of dancing bayadeers at an Indian temple, we have dancing cowgirls on the set of a Hollywood picture. Same choreography, just a different setting. Our Corsair, for example, is sort of like the plot of Ocean's Eleven. It takes place at the Miss Ocean's beauty pageant hosted at the Pirate's Cove Casino at Atlantis Beach. There are scheming showgirls, there are gunslinging beauty queens, and there's a pasha who thinks you can just grab women if you're famous enough. 
and it's still all petty pa. It follows the original librettos quite closely. Uh, this approach really allows us to invite everybody in and to be truly inclusive, which is our duty as American artists if we want the diverse communities we live in to support this art form that we all love so much. I think the reimaginings he described here sound really exciting. I love that they draw from beloved classic films. I think it can make the ballet mm -hmm. storylines feel familiar to audiences with various forms or levels of dance knowledge. Um, but something really cool is that he's taking these other older works from a completely different art form film, uh, which, of course, had diversity problems in itself. He's extracting the best parts of them and using that to update these ballets. Um, I think that's really creative. Um, and also, just want to mention that we absolutely need more Asian representation in every function of ballet and at every level. Give opportunities to people of Asian descent as dancers, choreographers, administrators, including the highest ranking positions like artistic and executive director because that is still sorely needed retweet 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 um please make sure that you keep up with phil on instagram at phil s chan um, and you can learn more about final bow for Yellowface and the work that they're doing at yellowface.org phil also has a book out it's called final bow for Yellowface: dancing between intention and impact it is fascinating and informative it's now available in paperback um, and we'll link to that in the episode description okay Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Uh, in the meantime, keep dancing. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. <laughs>